have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to Psalm 8. This morning we're beginning a brand new sermon series on prayer and we're going through the Psalms to learn some principles. This morning is a foundational message. If you can't grasp this morning, then the rest of the series is going to be a struggle for you. But if you can grasp this morning, understand this morning, make application to yourself and your current prayer life this morning, then the rest of the principles will just be icing on the cake. So the, today's message is very simple, but it's very crucial if you're going to change your prayer life. The title of our message, A New Look for Old Prayers. A New Look for Old Prayers, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 was written by King David, a man after God's own heart. Many people believe this psalm was written shortly after he slew Goliath in that epic battle many years ago. Now, all of you have probably read this psalm, and some of you have sung it, because this psalm has been set to music. In fact, I almost asked Keith to sing it this morning, but he doesn't like surprises. Do you? <laughs> and so I said, maybe next time. Okay. Psalm 8, the words of King David to those of his day, the words of King David to us this morning. Now, pay attention to the wording if you would, in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou created strength over thy enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast created or ordained, I ask myself the question, what is man? That thou would even be mindful of him. And the son of man, that you would have visited him. For thou hast made man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under our feet. All the sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, all the fowl of the air, all the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. Verse 9 is a repeat of verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. A survey was done of Christians. They were asked what is their favorite Old Testament book and what is their favorite New Testament book. According to the survey, the favorite New Testament book is the book of John. And the favorite Old Testament book is the book of Psalms. Now, I believe that the reason why so many of you, perhaps, and so many others, love the book of Psalms is because the book of Psalms is a seedbed, you might say, of many different themes in the Bible. And two of the greatest themes that you will find running through the book of Psalms is how to worship God and how to pray to God. 
Now, this sermon series is not going to be on worship. It's going to be on prayer. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, did he choose prayer instead of worship because prayer is more important than worship? If that's what you're thinking, that's like asking me the question, Pastor, is your right leg more important than your left leg? Listen, worship is important, amen? Prayer is important, amen? And in many ways, they're the flip side of the same coin. You really can't have worship without prayer, and I don't believe you can have prayer without having worship. So both of them are important. If I'm going to stand up, if I'm going to keep my balance, if I'm going to walk, I need two legs. If we're going to stand up and keep our balance and walk with the Lord Jesus, we've got to have two spiritual legs. And worship and prayer are two good ones. Now, as we begin this series, I think it's important that we all confess, not out loud, not by pointing your finger at somebody else, but we all confess that our prayer lives are probably lacking in some way that our prayer lives are a struggle. We struggle with a plan of how to pray. We struggle with a purpose in our prayer life. We struggle in persistence in our prayer life. We struggle in priority of our prayer life. We want to pray more. We want to pray better. And yet we struggle in, in trying to find a way to do that. And because we lack plan, we lack purpose, we lack persistence, we lack power, we lack priority in our prayer life, so many of us never see any transformation take place in ourselves or any changes take place in anybody else or any situation or circumstance we find ourselves in. Yet we keep on praying because that's what a good Christian is supposed to do. We just go through the routine. It becomes a duty, not a devotion. It becomes a labor, not a love. It's something that we endure, we don't enjoy. It's more of a ritual than it is a relationship-building act. And if we're not careful, our prayers just become mindless, heartless cliches. We just say things that don't mean nothing to us and certainly don't mean nothing to God. But we pray. Why? Because we've got to check it off the list to be a good Christian for the day. It's for that reason. I think we need to change our whole outlook and perspective on what prayer is. You see, many of us think that prayer is an act. It's an action verb. It's something that we do. May I suggest to you, just suggest to you, that prayer is not an act. It's not an action verb. It's not something we do. But prayer, in essence, is who we are. It's our very nature. It's, our, it's not a labor. It's our life. And I come to that conclusion because the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian man who ever lived, said we are to pray without ceasing. Now, what did he mean? If you take that at face value, it's impossible to pray 24-7 every second of every minute of every hour of every day. It can't be done. 
So he couldn't be talking about the act of prayer. I think he was talking about the state of being always in prayerful communication. Jesus said himself that we should abide in prayer. That word abide means to constantly and continually be in prayer to the Father. Understand this. Prayer is not action. Prayer is state of being. It flows out of who we are and it flows out of who he is to us. And that's what Psalm 8 is all about. Who is he? Because as we know who he is, we will know who we are. And when we know who he is and we know who we are, then we can become a prayer people continually, constantly in our lives each and every day. Now let's look at two things, just two points. Preacher, I thought every preacher did three points in a poem. No, I'm giving you two points. Sky Edie went overtime last week, so I, I'll give you less. Verses 1 through 3. I think we could summarize and capsulize those verses in this. God matters more than anything. Any, more than anything, God matters. Now listen to what David says. Pay attention again to verse 1 because we're going to dwell there in just a minute. O Lord, our now, you might be thinking, we'll stop there, that David's stuttering and stammering. He's got hiccups. He's just being repetitive. He's just being redundant. He's essentially saying the same thing. He just changes the first word. No, he's not. David's smart. He knows what he's doing. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and sucklings, thou hast created strength over thy enemies, that thou mightest still them and avenge them. And when I consider the heavens, the work of thy pinky, little finger, when I consider the work of thy fingers, not your, he don't even need his hand to make creation, just a finger, the moon and the stars which thou hast created. It's interesting, David begins this great psalm by talking about God, and he talks about the lordship of God. Now notice he says, O Lord, in verse 1, then he repeats himself in verse 9, O Lord. In the English, Lord is Lord. In the Hebrew, it's not. God has many names for himself. And God names himself. We don't name God. God names himself and tells us the names to call him. And he's, David starts out by saying, O oh Lord. This word for Lord comes from a Hebrew word called Yahweh. It's the name of God that God gave his people. Yahweh means a God that is self-existing. A God that needs no person, a God that needs no thing, he's all-sufficient, he needs no one, he needs nothing, 
He stands alone. He stands separate. He stands sovereign. He stands supreme. He is bigger than all his creation. That's Yahweh. David says, Oh, Yahweh. Self-sufficient, self-existing, doesn't need anyone or anything, almighty God. And then he changes. He says, our Lord. Do you notice that subtle little change? Again, we may not pick it up because we read Lord and Lord and say it means the same thing. No, no, no. That word Lord, the second Lord, comes from the Hebrew word for God that he gave us, Adonai. And Adonai speaks of a God that is personal, a God that is intimate, a God that is caring, a God that is loving, a God that wants to be with his creation. He's not way up there. He's down here. And though he self-existed, he chooses to bring into his circle you and I, man. Now, you might ask yourself, well, Pastor, how can he be Yahweh and how can he be Adonai at the same time? That's that's total opposites, is it not? It is. But he can be that because he is God. He can be both, and it does not conflict with himself. Though it is a contrast to us, it's not a conflict with him. He can be above us as Yahweh, and he can be with us as Adonai, and he can do it both at once. What happens is, so many times, we try to put God in our own little box. We try to confine him and say, well, God has to be this, or God has to be that. Listen, our thoughts are not his thoughts, and our ways are not his ways. We cannot understand him, and, and that's why he says, trust him more than understand him. When we try to narrow God, and try to dice God up into parts, and we choose the parts that we like and discard the rest, that's how you get cults. That's how you get the little isms of extremism that has invaded the church and takes the church into the ditches on the right or the ditches on the left when the churches need to be walking dead center. Listen, God can be both, and it does not conflict who he is. When you say that God is only Yahweh, He's far above us. He doesn't want anything to do with us. He doesn't need us. When you think that and that alone, what does that make God? It makes him unknowable and irrelevant. And some people do that. When you bring God down and say, well, he's only Adonai. He comes down, he's with me. He's personal, he's loving, he's caring. We walk hand in hand. We talk and talk and walk and walk together. When you make God little, you have a tendency to trivialize him and make him contemptible. 
He is a big God who lives up there by himself and he needs no one else. But he's a little enough God to come down here and be with us and live right there. Wow. As creator, he's big. And he doesn't need his creation. He's Yahweh. As savior, he chooses to be part of his creation, particularly you and I, and to come and mingle with us and talk with us and walk with us and relate with us to live in us. Now, notice David says that this God, who is Yahweh, Creator, Adonai, Savior, who's big, who's little, who lives up there, who lives right here. Notice he says that he is majestic, he is excellent in his name. That's what David's way of saying he's indescribable. You know, when it, when it comes to trying to describe God, who he is, you kind of have to leave vocabulary words at the curb. Moses, trying to describe him in Exodus 15, 11, said, Who's like you, O Lord? I, I don't have anything to compare you to, certainly not the little gods of Egypt. He said, Who's like you? You're glorious. You're in holiness. You're fearful in your praises. You do mighty wonders and miracles. King Solomon, considered to be the wisest man who ever lived, wrote in 1 Kings 8, 27, he said, but will God indwell the earth? Behold, the heavens and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. How can this house of worship that we're building and dedicating, the tabernacle, the temple, how can it possibly hold him? Solomon says, God is so big, not even creation can hold him. And yet we're building a temple and about to dedicate it and he's going to come live in the temple. He said, I can't understand it. And neither can I. And neither can you. But he doesn't say understanding. He says, what? Frank Borman was one of the astronauts on Apollo 8. He was not considered to be a religious man. But looking down from his spaceship at planet Earth, this is what Frank Borman said. I quote, he said, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us. And that power was God. John Glenn, another astronaut, looking down from his space capsule, said this as he looked at planet Earth. To look out at this kind of creation and not believe in a God is impossible. You have to be crazy or stubborn or both not to be able to see the fingers of God in creation. He's majestic so much that the babies in verse 2 praise him and he uses them for his glory. Do you know that children 
understand that there's a God. And children seek to find who he is to worship him. As children get older, they get dumber sometimes because they're taught by dumb people. But a child untaught, just coming out of the mother's womb, is born with a hole in his or her heart that God put there that only God can fill. And that child will go through life looking for something to fill the hole that God put there. And if we as parents and we as a church will point them to the living God, Jesus Christ, he'll fill it. So many times we as parents and churches and others don't do their job very well. So these children, these babies and children will grow up to be teenagers and adults and they'll start trying to fit into that round hole God put in their spiritual heart, the square pegs of this world. And they don't fit. And they never will fit. But the one who is Yahweh, the one who is Adonai, the one who says his name is excellent and majestic, puts into the mouths of children and babes who he is. And not only do they say who he is and are looking for him, creation does in verse 3. You know, creation talks. <laughs> it says, look to God. Do you know people who study outer space have said that they believe, this is people who know, who study outer space, said they believe that out there somewhere there is 10 billion galaxies. 10 billion galaxies. They also believe that each galaxy of the 10 billion has at least 10 billion stars, has innumerable planets and other cosmic spheres. Can you imagine that? Ten billion galaxies, each with ten billion stars, each with planets, comets, asteroids, suns, and moons. <laughs> and David says God created it with his hands. Know what he said? God created it with his. God didn't even break a sweat. And creation testifies of his greatness. Because as great as, great as the creation is, greater is the creator. So God matters, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to understand that God matters. He's first and he's foremost. He's preeminent, he's prominent, he matters. He's majestic in who he is as Yahweh and Adonai, as creator and savior. Now, as we understand who he is, let's understand who we are as a church. Verses 4 through 9, David shifts gears. He goes from God as Yahweh and Adonai and how majestic is his name and how the children praise him and how creation praises him. That this God now cares about us. God matters more than anything else. 
And we matter more than anything else to God. We matter more than anything else to God. David's scratching his head in verse 4. He says, I can't figure this one out. What is man? Put your name there. What's Jim Palmer? What's you? That God would be mindful of us. That the Son of Man would come down and visit. For thou hast made us, man, a little lower than the angels and hast crowned us with glory and honor. We were made in verse 6 to have dominion over all the works of God's creation. We were made to have dominion, to have everything under our feet. The sheep, the oxen, the beasts, the fowl, the fish, everything that's in the water. Verse 9, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Now David's thinking. He looks at himself. Take a look at yourself. And then he looked up at creation. He saw the sun. He saw the moon. Perhaps he saw some stars. Maybe he was aware that there was planets out there. Maybe David had traveled the world and maybe he went to the Grand Canyon. Maybe he went to Niagara Falls. Maybe he traveled the Amazon River. Maybe he went to the vast deserts, the great rainforests. And David says, God created all of that. But God doesn't think about that. God doesn't care about that. God thinks and cares about and all the supernovas and all the black holes and all the stars and all the planets and all the moons and all the comets and all the asteroids and all the constellations in a world that's filled with wonders and awes. God thinks about me. Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18, the psalmist says, How precious are the thoughts of the Lord on me. How great is the summation of all of his thoughts. If I could count how many times God thinks of me, it would be more in number than the sand of the sea. Wow. This God who created all of this when he stops and he thinks, he thinks about you and me. Not only that, he cares to have a relationship with us. You know, he made the angels. He made Gabriel, the messenger angel. He made Michael, the warrior angel. He made all the angels. And yet God doesn't really have a relationship with them like us. When he sings, do you know God sings, Keith? God sings songs. Oldies but goodies for some of us. But God sings. You know when God sings who he sings about? He doesn't sing about planets. He doesn't sing about his angels. 
he sings about his people. The ones that he thinks about, he sings about. In Zephaniah it says, The Lord thy God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love, and he will joy over you with song. You know, he, he has a name for us, and he has a song for us. I wonder what your song is. I wonder what my song is. This God thinks about you. He knows your name. He knows your need. He knows where you're at. He knows what you're going through. And when he thinks about us, a smile breaks out on his face and he sings. Wow. And you know, when God made you and I, when he made the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he made us to be creatures of glory and honor. He made us to be greater than all creation, including the animals. And he made us to have more glory and honor than even his own angels. That's what verse 5 says. When he made us, he made us to be unique and be special. When he made Adam and Eve, he gave them dominion over this world. He said, it's yours. Name the animals. And they did. Rule this world. It's yours. He made Adam and Eve to heal this world, to educate this world, to help this world, to bring peace to this world, to rule this world, to give life and health to this world. And doing that, they would be glorious and honorable, and he would be gloried and honored. But we all know the story. Adam and Eve, representing you and I, blew it. They lost dominion. They lost the ability to heal this world. Now they only harmed it. They lost the ability to educate. Now they eradicate. They lost the ability to help. Now they hurt. They lost the ability to bring peace. Now there's only war. They lost the ability to rule. Now ravishing takes place. They lost the ability to bring life and health. It's been replaced with death and sickness. You see, when sin came into the world, when Adam and Eve forfeited what God gave them, everything started collapsing. We're not evolving, ladies and gentlemen. We're devolving. Racing toward destruction and death and damnation, if the truth be known. But God thought of us. God sang songs about us. God cared about us. And he said, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, they lost it. Satan tricked them and took from them their dominion, their honor, their glory, and their relationship with me. I will give it back. I will send another man. He will be called the second Adam. And he too will represent the human race. He will be my own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will send him not to paradise to take on the devil. I'll send him to the cross and he'll take him on. The odds will be stacked against him, but he will prevail. He will win. And in his victory, 
the human race again will have dominion over all things. They will receive honor and glory in all things. And my relationship with them will be restored. Say, Pastor, where'd you get that from? Hebrews chapter 2. Do you know the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8? Psalm 8 is talking about us. Hebrews 2 is talking about Jesus Christ and how he would come and become a man and how he would undo what Adam did. How he would take back what Adam lost. How he would restore dominion to us over this world. You say, Pastor, we don't have it yet. No, we don't, but it's coming. In the millennial kingdom, we will have dominion over this world again. The lion will lay down with the lamb, and both of them will lay at our feet. We will have dominion over this world. We once again will have a glorious and honorable position in God's kingdom as sons of the living God. All of that restored to us by Jesus Christ. Now, in closing, if we understand who he is, he is Yahweh, so big that creation cannot contain him, but he's Adonai, so small that he can live in our hearts. His name is majestic. The babies cry out and testify of him. Creation cries out and testifies of him. If he's that, and we're tiny, insignificant, weak, frail, foolish, wicked little people, but he loves us. And he came to be with us and live among us that he could justifiably and lawfully go to a cross and take our sins and pay for them in full and reverse the death sentence and give us life. Take back everything Satan stole and give it back to us again. That's how much he cares. Now remember, you can't pray as you should till you know who he is because when you know who he is, then you know who you are. Because what is prayer? Prayer is relationship. Who is he? He's created. Who are we? Created beings with plan and purpose. Who is he? He's Savior. Who are we? Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall become a son and daughter of God with plan and with purpose. He's Lord. Who are we? We are servants of this Lord. We're to trust him. We're to obey him. Who is he? He's God. Yahweh God. Adonai God. But he's God. And we're to worship him. We are to worship him. When presidents enter a room, you stand when Jesus Christ enters a room, you fall to your feet. You fall on your face. He's God. He's worship. And he's Father. And we're sons and daughters of God. You think about that next time you pray. And now you know why he will hear you and answer you. Because that's how special you and I are. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.